knowing what I know about hospice, knowing where those families are because I've been there, knowing how they're feeling and what they're going through. I never, ever want anybody to have a bad experience in such an important time of their life. Um, I never want a patient to die alone. I never want a patient to not be comfortable. Um, I just, as long as God continues to call me here, this is where I'll stay and I'll just continue doing the best that I can. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Ashley Gower is a registered nurse and director of hospice at the Hospice of Cherokee in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Ashley, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We are glad that you're here. Could you give us a little background of where you grew up? Sure. Um, I was born and raised here in Tahlequah. Um, Just a small town girl, never really went anywhere. Um, Graduated high school here, went to college here, and um, started my nursing career here. What was the spiritual background of of your childhood? Um, I actually grew up um, going to a First Assembly church. So it was a like a Pentecostal denomination. Mm. Um, my Graham took us every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Um, <laughs> as I got older, um, we had started going, we'd went to, um, my dad grew up Baptist. And so we'd went to a couple Baptist churches. And currently I've kind of found my home in a not, a non-denominational church that we've been going to for about the past 14 years, and we really enjoy it. Well, how has this uh, spiritual journey of yours influenced your nursing? Did it help guide you going into hospice? I really didn't know what to expect when I even came into hospice, Um, learning that you don't just treat the patient physically um, was kind of hard to get through to me. Um, I my Most of my nursing career was in a hospital, and so your goal is just to treat them and keep them alive. And now I've completely flipped that and had to completely change my focus on my care for my patient. And so I've gotten to see some pretty amazing things um, spiritual-wise here in hospice. And I really, just having that spiritual background coming in, I think it helped better understand families. Um, It helped better understand um, some of the struggles that they face. Was it your dream always as a child to become a nurse? Yes. Um... I I had one aunt that was a nurse. I didn't even know she was a nurse until I was older, but I was I was always um 
my dad had bought me a little doctor's kit that you get at Walmart that came with a little plastic stethoscope and things like that. And I've got tons of pictures. That was my favorite toy. I played with that all the time. I was all the time, um, had bandages in my backpack and, um, I had a friend who experienced seizures growing up and even in middle school, um, I was so attuned to just her and just had such a passion to help people. Um, teachers weren't really educated back then, I guess, about those types of situations. And so if she ever had a seizure, they would come and get me, um, to help her. And so, mm. Always. I've always wanted to be a nurse. My family has pushed me to become a, a nurse practitioner, and my dad even wanted me to go to medical school, but I just, it, I didn't feel like that's where I was called to be. Uh, going back a little bit to your discussion, a little bit of about your story, about uh, you're having to go from being in the hospital to cure, how, do, how difficult was it for you to recognize the fact of how it is in hospice now, you're just, uh, you're helping people adjust to the fact that they're dying and you really are aware that they're dying. Because uh, I just had a, um, I just had a conversation yesterday with one of my patients who's, uh, uh, she's a nurse and her husband is dying of cancer and she is struggling with the idea of not curing. Yes, it it is a lot more difficult than people think. As a nurse, you are ingrained to save people. Um, your main focus is to treat and to keep people alive. You like death is not an option. Um, and so, even going through it when my brother had cancer, um, the family would turn to me, you know, um, for guidance, and it was it was easy for me to slip into that nursing role. It mm -hmm. was extremely hard for me. I don't think I grieved the loss of my brother until he was gone for maybe a year, a year and a half, because I had slipped so far into that nursing role. I think it's just because you try so hard to keep them alive and you're mm -hmm. doing everything you can. Um, it's hard to grasp that concept that they're at the end of their life and your treatment, just it just looks different. Hmm. And did you feel, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious about this because I, you know, did you feel any uh, guilt, I would guess, save? Uh, maybe that you didn't try hard enough, you didn't succeed, any of that type of thought? Or did you really recognize Absolutely. the... Absolutely. No, you, you okay. hit that spot on, yeah. Um, the guilt at times was overwhelming. And I remember one particular time... I asked my mom, you know, what can I do? What can I do for you? And she looked at me dead in the eye and said, save him. And uh -huh. Uh -huh. as somebody, you know, as a nurse, and you, you're always told that's what you do, watching my brother, you know, continue to just slip further and further away. After Afterwards, when you actually have time to sit down and process it, that was one thing for me. It was, okay, did I do enough? You know, could I have uh -huh. done this? Should we have tried this? Should we done another treatment? And ultimately, it was his decision um, when he finally decided to forego treatment. But in that, and I never forced, you know, he, we always let him make his decisions. But at the same, like, I was constantly researching and I was 
um, because we had never had anybody in the family. He had glioblastoma, and we had never had oh. anybody in the family who had ever had that type of cancer. So it was new to us. And so I was constantly trying to find peer review articles and um, join support groups and talk to people about, okay, this is what's happening. What do we need to expect? And so, yes, and there's still days. My brother's been gone for almost six years now, and there's still days where that guilt, you know, I'll just kind of slip into it and think, you know, maybe could we have done something different? But I know now we couldn't. I mean, it just, it was inevitable, and he was comfortable, and uh-huh. but it was definitely, definitely different in a an experience for sure. Does this uh, help this experience with your brother, has it helped you find when you hire new nurses about how you find them that are really gifted in this, in this, uh, I call it ministry of, uh, of hospice. Absolutely. Um, we not knowing really what hospice was, we were that family that waited too long. Now that I Uh, see it, we were that family that waited too long. And, Having gone through that process with my brother, seeing what was offered, seeing what was available, um, and just educating myself on hospice and being in this position, it has been tremendously helpful in hiring um, and doing the things that we do for our families and our patients. Because I look back on the care that my brother received and... um, I'm always striving to find nurses who definitely have the compassion and have a heart. Um, Hospice, I tell my nurses all the time, I don't care if you've been a nurse for five minutes or 30 years, hospice is a completely different world. And everything that you've learned prior to this, you can just forget about. <laughs> and they look at you like you're crazy, and you're until they do. They, until they, they until, do. They don't understand it, and then right. they get in there, and they're like, "Okay, I get it." That's now. right. Like, you I take them out into exactly the field. You take them out there, and you show them what it's about, and all of a sudden, it's like the light goes on. So that's cool. Yes, and I I notice nurses. You know, they do because I usually tell them it's going to take you a good six months to a year to start feeling comfortable with the fact that you're Uh not saving their life, that it's okay when they pass away because that's, I mean, that's what hospice is. And our, our goal is still to treat that patient and that family. You just have to do it in a different capacity. So um, give us a little background about your calling to hospice uh, nursing and also that, uh, that mental change from, you know, saving to, you know, bringing comfort until death happens? I actually was not looking for hospice. Um, When you're in nursing school, your home care, the chapter of home care is so small and minute. I Mm. mean, you're not really educated on home care, um, hospice especially. And so um, your experience with the dying in the hospital is mainly they're not good experiences because it's mainly a trauma or something like that. It's not often that you'll actually get a patient um, where it was peaceful and intended. Um, so how my journey started was just um, the administer- administrator of this company um, was a girl I had actually went to school with, 
and she had reached out to me and said, I have an opening. I think you would be great. And at that time, we were actually going through all of this with my brother. We hadn't quite gone on hospice. And I was like, well, I just, I think it's too fresh and too soon. Not right now. And she had actually approached me two other times after that, um, a year later, and then almost a year, probably about a year, not quite a year after my brother had passed away. And I just felt like, you know, she kept hounding me about this. And in the position that I was in, I wasn't happy. I I was looking for something different. And I just kind of felt like God maybe put that in my lap. And so I was like, okay, well, we'll try it. And so... I started um I started out as a field nurse and I just fell in love and it's kind of one of those things like you didn't know you were missing it until you got into it mm-hmm. um, and it just and that's a, when you try to explain that to people they kind of look at you again like you're crazy because who in the world would want to work with patients who are dying. Like, I hear it all the time, that's so sad. Why would you do that? That must be so hard. Mm. And even when I had told my dad about it, he was like, I don't, he said, I, I don't think you're going to make it. He said, you, I don't think, he wasn't saying that my heart wasn't in it. He was just saying he thought it would affect my heart too much. And you do have your bad days. Um especially when you lose one of those patients that was very near and dear to you. Hmm. Um, but it is the most rewarding work I've ever done. I have a young, young, my uh, youngest daughter. She uh, sees a nurse and she started, you know, doing all the things, checking it all out, wanting to know what it was that she wanted to do. So <clears throat> she did all kinds of things in the hospital. And then she Suggest, thought I suggested her to try hospice. Well, she did hospice, and she was uh, phenomenal, quite frankly. And uh, and I'm biased, but you know, uh, when people write stories about what you've done for them during this period of time when their loved one is dying, uh, it you know it tells it speaks loudly. And unfortunately, I think it got too much to her, and now she's doing babies. But I mean. She, I mean, she thoroughly enjoyed it. She loved visiting the people. She loved being with family. She went over the board uh, like you're supposed to. But it, it, get, it can get too much sometimes. And that I don't know if she didn't have the right support or what it was that kept her in it. But uh, I guess she got tired of seeing, she wanted to see life beginning and not life ending. Right. And you, that's really, that's one thing that I really stress to my staff as far as decompression um, regardless of what capacity of nursing you work in, you have to have a way to decompress, whether that looks like counseling or, you know, shutting your phone off at the end of the day to spend time with your family or, you know. And so we try with the, um, you know, with all the changes with COVID, it's it looks a little different. But before all this happened, we would, you know, sometimes get together before work and have coffee or get together at lunch, and the rule was you don't talk about work. You can talk about anything else, but you can't talk about work. And so that was just kind of giving them the opportunity to just almost have a normal day and kind of de-stress. You know, being a hospice nurse, like you already articulated, is emotionally challenging. So how are your nurses doing now with the addition of the COVID-19 uh, environment. 
How are you I, and your I'm, team coping? I'm really proud of them. Um, they are very fluid. Um, they don't really buck against change a whole lot. It was a very scary situation um, for everybody. You know, there were so many unknowns. And with us being nurses, you know, you always have a network of friends who are nurses. And so we had friends on the front line. And so it was difficult um, just with the unknown. But um, our administrator was real quick to start putting policies in place. Um, we had developed a team to address specific COVID um questions and situations, what would we do if we had a patient test positive, um, what kind of PPE do we need, what's going to be our protocol as far as visits go, and so we did uh, make some adjustments. We did barrier visits. Um, we decreased frequencies for those patients that were stable. Um, we had our PPE, so, and the team, I mean, nobody backed down. Nobody called in. We even had nurses volunteer to take care of those patients who had tested positive. Um, and so they they were troopers. I was really proud of them because they really stepped up to the challenge. So how are things going now in your community as far as this uh, COVID and the, seems like the reignitement of the, the, the virus? Um, we are reevaluating every day. We're reevaluating our policies. We're reevaluating how we're doing things. We are fortunate. Um, our patients and their families have really gone above and beyond in taking those precautions. They've even gone as far as not allowing some of our staff in just for that protection for their family. Um, as far as cases go, they're still on the rise, just like any other place. Um, but for the most part, um, I mean, we really, as far as our patients and hospice goes, we haven't been tremendously affected. Well, I was uh, out visiting a patient yesterday at a facility that I was allowed in a month ago. And mm -hmm. I walk into the facility, facility yesterday to visit my patient, and I see myself. I go through all the protocol to get in there, walk into, up to the second floor, and all of a sudden, this administrator, assistant administrator I know, comes up to me and says, uh, Joe, uh, I got to get you out of here. You're not allowed in here. And I'm like, you know, he was very, uh, he was very direct with me and appropriate. And he, had, he was just, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I said, no, I mean, if I'm not supposed to be here, I'm not supposed to be here. I just didn't know. And, right. And, and I was, you know, hoping here that things were going to be getting to the point that we were going to be able to go and do this and things were going to slow down and blah, blah, blah. And this is just from, you know, out here in suburban Chicago, it's 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 coming back and we're scared. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Yeah. again. We have a couple patients in facilities. Uh, one facility still will not let us in. The other facility has just started to allow the nurses back in, but you do have to. Um, they're not actually requiring us to, to put on the full regalia. We're only required to wear a mask and wear our gloves. Um, but our other disciplines, social worker, chaplain, they're still not allowed in, bath aides. Yep. Yep. Um, for a while, our chaplain and our social worker when it really hit hard here, 
we had moved to phone visits. Uh-huh. And it was so crazy to see the effect that that had on our patients. And I think it kind of, our chaplain, I think it kind of helped him understand how important his role is hmm. um, because those phone calls are anything like being face-to-face with somebody. You can talk uh-huh. to somebody on the phone, pray with them, pray over them, you know, that sort of thing. But to have that physical connection and to see somebody face-to-face. And so we had had um, quite a few patients. They were like, you know, please, please let him come back in here. And we did. Um, you know, he get, he he dresses up just like the nurses do. Uh-huh. And he even, he said, I didn't realize how much I missed being out in the field until I couldn't be out in the field. <laughs> oh, I, that's been my complaint the whole time during this time. I mean, I just enjoy the interaction with people. And I know that this isolation has made some of our patients decline because of it. Mm-hmm. You know, For they, sure. they don't have their pa- they don't have their pa- their family. They don't have you know even the staff mm-hmm. does not spend the time that they used to, even though they're probably mm-hmm. minimal in a lot of these facilities anyway. But yet to have the interaction by being out with everybody. I mean, everybody's in the room all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a sad deal, and I don't think, I mean, people in healthcare, I think they understand the detriment it can have on somebody mentally uh-huh. um, and spiritually. Um, but yeah, it's important, and that's that's why I guess we're hoping you know things will things will probably never go back to completely normal, but normal enough to where we can prevent that. Yeah, so is your chaplain in the field now? He is. Um, we just have a couple patients that have requested um, him just to do phone visits, but he mm-hmm. is back into the field, um, work as usual, taking his precautions, um, and he does a fantastic job. He was He had never had hospice experience before starting here. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a minister. Um I believe at a Baptist church. And um, when I came across those classes online, um, of course, I'm not a chaplain and I didn't really know. I just, I knew there was something out there that could help him. And I have seen so much growth in him, um, not only just by the way he talks and the way he interacts with people. I feel like Mm. he's becoming more confident in his role. Mm. Um, I think he understands now. I could tell him all the time, your job is so important, but I think he understands now just how important it is. Yeah. Ashley has a a chaplain, you know, taking a course with us. So how do you handle stress? I know you're in the leadership role and with the pandemic, I mean, it's tough for hospice administrators and directors. How are you dealing with the stress? Um, I won't lie. Some days are better than others. Um, But it's just, I've always been that type of person. Um, I can't control the things around me. All I can do is control me and how I react. And so that's what I try to focus on. I do yoga um, and I have children. And so they keep me busy a lot of the time. Um, I just try to keep a positive mentality. I try to kind of be the calm in the storm for the staff because if they see you stressed out and you know, negative and kind of scared and whatnot, they, they follow. 
And so it's mainly just been relying on my faith. Um, I have prayed a lot (laughs) Um, and just leaning on my church family and just finding those ways to decompress. Mm, That's powerful. You know, the goal of every hospice is to facilitate a peaceful death. Mm-hmm. So in your opinion, what does a peaceful death look like? Um, I guess a peaceful death could be explained in various different ways. Um, we have, to me, I guess a peaceful death would be a patient that is not in pain, does not have the terminal agitation. One goal of ours is to help facilitate those last wishes. What is it that they want to do or what is it what is something that could be keeping them here? Um and we try to help them work through that whether it be reconciliation with a loved one or you know a date night with a spouse or our goal is just to make sure that they have no regrets at the end of their life that um they have no unfinished business per se. And our nurses, they're real um they I even had one nurse, she was like, Are we allowed to pray with the patients? Because I don't think I could do this job if I had to tell somebody no. And I'm like, Absolutely, like please, you know. I I I know that the nurse is there to treat the family and or the patient physically, you know. Um, to keep them comfortable, and the chaplain has his role of the spirituality and sometimes even the social worker. And But I feel like we all kind of do each of each other's jobs, and it's kind of important to know um, what each of us do and kind of help facilitate, you know, have us help facilitate that chaplain, start those conversations, because um, it won't always be him that they ask the questions to. Absolutely. How did yeah. you how did you come up with this vision? I like it. I mean, where you're talking about um, that cause, because we we live in a in a society where people have their certain specialty and nobody's supposed to step on it. And here you are telling people it's okay to step on I it. I think what you really not working in right. I think working in the hospital it's so funny because um even though we're all nurses sometimes nurses get offended. Like, for example, I used to work med surge, and sometimes I would have to float to different departments. I'm coming to help you, but it was almost like I've just um, encroached on their territory. Like, how dare you be up here? And that is so common in the hospitals. Um, I don't know why it's that way, but I'm just, I don't, know that I really realized I had a vision. I just want to help people Hmm. and Uh I want to give Uh others the tools to help people. And there's no reason why any of us can't do that. We're not stepping in to say, okay, well, you're not doing a good job. So I'm, I'm going to take over because I can do it better. That's not it at all. It's we all struggle in our position sometimes. Why can't we have somebody there to help us? Absolutely. That's beautiful. Yeah. My wife uh, is a retired hospice nurse, and she would be with her patients. She would nurse nurse them to wherever the point they were at. And there are many occasions, I know many, many occasions, where she would feel, and rightfully so, 
you need prayer. Mm-hmm. And, and she would pray with them. And I'm, you know, I'm, you know, here I am clergy and I'm like, ooh, are you stepping on my bounds? No, you're not. You're doing something in the moment no. that needs to be done mm-hmm. for that person. And they're willing to accept well, your if, prayer. And why not? But that's kind of the way I look at it. If I'm led to do something, um, you know, by my higher power, then that's what I'm going to do. I may receive backlash for it. Yep. And they may not understand why I did it, but mm-hmm. I don't answer to them kind of sort of thing. I mean, I would never <laughs> step on anybody's toes or I would never try to purposely offend somebody. But if my Lord tells me to do something, I better listen. There gotcha. we go. We'll take a short break and then we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing our conversation with Ashley. Uh, Ashley, um, you've spoken a lot about the impact of your faith in your job. Can you tell us how that has evolved over the years? Sure. So um, growing up in the church that I grew up in, everything was based off of fear. Um, It was almost they scared you in believing that if you were to leave that day and die, you would go to hell unless you were there repenting. Um, And I know everybody has their own beliefs and their own ways of um, knowing who Jesus is. But growing up, I really struggled with that because in my mind, I was thinking, who, who is this God? Like, um, why would he want us to be So why would we need to be scared, so scared that we believe in him that way? Why would he not want us to come to him ourselves? Or it was just a lot of questions, and it actually really turned me away from the church. Um, At 12 years old, I was having nightmares about being left behind and um, going to hell. And there were times that I would try to stay up all night because I was so scared. And... um, when I had finally found my church home and started listening to um, our preacher, he it was so much different. It was more teaching on principles and the things that the Bible say and how we apply them to our life and um, what it looks like to be a Christian and how we don't have to be perfect and what salvation means. Um, yes, he is to be feared, but he's also merciful and just, and Hmm. we don't have to be perfect as Christians and we are going to mess up every day, but that doesn't make us any less of a Christian. At the end of the day, we're not, none of us are perfect and we're all going to fall short and we're all going to make those mistakes, but it's the grace of God and it's that salvation that we've received that, um, you know, we can be okay knowing that we're not perfect. And I think that was one thing I was striving for so long to be perfect. You know, that song kids sing, you can't get to heaven in a, uh, in a washing machine and on roller skates. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that song growing up. We sing it all the time at Sunday school. But, um, it's just, um, 
you know, you don't get through heaven except for the Lord. Can you sing it? I don't, I don't really remember. It was almost like a, you can't oh, nice get song. Put her on the spot. <laughs> so um, I think just just learning the good qualities of God and um, that He is to be feared, but you don't have to be fearful. I think that's just kind of where I'm at now. And that has improved how you take care, how you do your job. Absolutely. Um, I think just not really on the the spiritual aspect of it, but just understanding that we're all people, regardless of the situation, we're all people. Um, none of us are perfect. We all have separate opinions. We all have different beliefs. Nobody has to believe what I believe. And I don't have to believe what they believe, but I will respect them. I'll respect their beliefs. I'll respect their opinions. I don't have to agree with it, but they're a person, and I'm going to treat them as such. For me, as Christians, we're just called to love, and that's what I try to do. Um, Some days you have bad days, and you get short with people. And one thing I just tried to tell, and this just goes back to having lost my brother, I tell my staff all the time, your inconvenience may last you 15 to 20 minutes. You're going to have to put that aside because this person is going on a journey that nobody can go on with them. They have to do it all alone and their families will never see them again physically um, once they pass. And so whatever is going on in your day, whether you spilt your coffee or Um, you got stuck in traffic or you don't take that into the home. You walk through the door like it's your very first visit of the day and you do your job and you do it with a grateful heart um, because what they're going through is so much bigger is, is how I see it. It's powerful to see that your brother's death, which is tragic, has really made you a better human being, but also a better nurse and um, a better advocate for compassion and mercy and love. I always looked for some way to honor my brother um, and his life on this earth. And so I guess that's my work through hospice. I seen, I seen all the benefits that my brother received. I, I seen in his last moments, um, you know, just the power of hospice and, it was just, it was mind-boggling, and it was amazing. When I finally got to sit down and evaluate it and look at all the different disciplines and the aspects and how they contributed to his care, um, and obviously my brother was very important to me. He was my older brother, and um, just ha- honoring his memory through hospice every day, I guess, is is how I try to do it. So, Ashley, uh, with, with being a nurse, you deal, especially in hospice, you deal with a lot of death and dying. Do you remember a time when you lost your first patient and how has your reactions changed since then? Um, when I lost my first patient? Yeah. Um, the, the, so when I first came on as a nurse, I was still within my training period when I lost my first patient. And it was the first time I had ever experienced uh, terminal agitation. Mm. And 
it was very distressing to me. And I thought to myself, if this is what will happen every time I'm not doing this. Um, It was traumatic for me. It was traumatic for the family. However, when you, when you control that agitation and you get them comfortable, um, I think in the beginning, there was so much unknown when I started this position. And when you see that, my first instinct was, and the one thing that I told the nurse I was with, I said, do something, call an ambulance or something. And she was like, we don't do that. And so I'm standing here and everything in me is saying, help this woman. But the help that we were giving her was a lot different than what I wanted to do. And um, it really bothered me after losing that first patient. It really made me rethink, okay, is this where I need to be? Hmm. But as time went on and I got to see more patients and I saw that it's not always like that. And there are, I I had one patient I will never forget. Um, she was actually a member of my church and she was a younger lady. Um, and when I went out to do her death call, she was smiling. And that is the first (laughs) time I had ever seen anything like that. And it made my heart so happy, um, to see that because in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, she just, she's, she's with the Lord. She just met the Lord. Like she was ready to go. Hmm. Um, and so you you just get to see some pretty amazing things. Death can be beautiful, and the in the dying process can be pretty amazing. I know some people hear that and they're thinking this woman has fallen off her rocker, but <laughs> unless unless you're in it, you won't understand. But it's it has forever changed me. Well, it's it's interesting you you bring that type of where people question you know <laughs> you you got to be crazy to do this kind of thing. Uh, because, you know, they say the same thing to Saul and I, you know, how can you do this day in, day out, blah, blah, blah. Um, you see the beauty in it. I mean, there is, there's, there's the beginning of life, which is so vulnerable and we take care, good care of our little babies. Mm-hmm. But when we have, at the end of life, they're like little babies mm-hmm. and we need to take care of them because they are so vulnerable. Yeah. And, you know, the hard part is that, you know, as us who are survivors, we are very, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Self, uh, yeah, we want it, we're selfish. You know, okay. we want to make sure that they're going to stay longer enough for me to make sure I could do what it is so I can feel good when they die. Yes. And that that's just the wrong approach, of course, because yeah. we got to get away from that. So have you had experiences with families? I'm, I'm guessing you've not had the perfect death or dying process every time you've been out there. Do you recall anything at all with someone you might have thought you could have done something different? Um, I think that is with every patient. Um, like I said, as a nurse, you're always, you've been trained to save these people. And just like going through that with my brother, that guilt, could we have done something different? We, um, and I know I'm not the only one because I've had staff come to me and be like, uh-huh. should we have done this? Or, you know, could we have done this? And maybe we could have, um, but you're never going to know. And there's no point in, in, um, heart, you know, regurgitating those thoughts or those feelings because 
usually what I tell my staff, I, I have my staff reevaluate. Do you feel like you did everything you could to make this patient comfortable? Do you feel like you did everything you could to assist that family through the grieving process or even the patient through the dying process? Uh-huh. And um, did you educate? Did you do those things? And if at the end of the day they say they can, then good. But if not, I have them, you know, ask themselves, okay, this is where I'm struggling. Could I have done something different? Or what would I have done different? Have you had any nurses or yourself been told not to come back? Um, we have been fired from home. <laughs> okay. Um, I just was wondering, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it happens. Yeah, and, and I, it does. It does. And I tell my staff, don't take it personal. A lot of times, it's because the family is not ready. And it's almost an offense for you to come into their home and say, you oh, know, absolutely. this is hospice is because they're not ready yet. Uh-huh. And and we don't take that personal. What do you do when they say, don't use the H word? Um, we get that a lot. <laughs> oh, you do? We do. Um, we get it occasionally here, too. Yeah. Um, they don't want their loved one knowing they're on hospice. They don't want... We, we actually have quite a few uh, Cherokee-speaking citizens, um, oh. and um, they'll have family members go with them to appointments to interpret. And um, we had one lady who only spoke Cherokee. The daughter knew that she had cancer and didn't want to tell her. And so what I educate my staff on, and even for me myself when I'm out in the field, I just tell the family, I understand this is hard. However, you're taking their right away from them as a patient. They have a right to know what's going on with them. They have a right to know that they're dying. They have a right to know that the care we are giving them is to help facilitate that. Because if not, you're taking away the opportunity for them to resolve any issues that they have. You're taking away, because to them, they're thinking, you know, I just have a nurse coming in. I'm sick. I have plenty of time. And so what we usually tell the families is just, we will give you a moment to figure out how you're going to broach the subject. And if you want our chaplain and social worker or us to help facilitate that, we'll be there with you. But if they specifically ask us, we will not lie to them. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's, you have to be truthful. You do. And, and that's just kind of taking away that, um, that independence on their part to be able to make their decisions if they're still able. Mm-hmm. And it's just not fair. I, um, you know, if, if we were to have told my brother, no, you don't have cancer, you're just sick. Mm. I mean, they know. They know they're getting sicker. They're know they, they know they're they not kn- getting better. That's right. They know they're dying. Quite frankly, they they do they do, and it's and that's another thing that's hard to explain to the family is they'll say, I had one little couple, the wife. She said he's he's seeing people that aren't there, and he's talking to people that aren't there. Can you give him some medicine for that? Oh no, don't. And it was hard. <laughs> yeah, it was hard to explain to her that 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 is just part of the process, oh, and that it's is, a normal uh, part of the process, and it's it's an invaluable part of the process. It just mm. brings so much peace to people, yes. on the most part. Let's put it that way. We, we had one patient um, who had threatened suicide. Um, he had a plan, and that was the first time we had ever had a situation like that, and it was all hands on deck. Um, the nurses, the chaplain, the social worker... Um, not just for the patient, but for the family. Um, 
we utilize um, sometimes if the chaplain is is having a slow day or he's available um, if the nurse needs some supplies or um, if they need some assistance in the home, they'll call him and say, hey, can you come help me? Can you bring me this? Um, if they're in a home and the family's having a spiritual crisis, they'll call him right away and say, hey, can you come out? This family's not doing well. Social worker, same thing. Um, I mean, they're they're at the ready at all times. Whatever capacity we need them in, they're always mm-hmm. there. Of course, they don't do patient care and things like that. Yes, but in the in the aspects of any any situation, they can be a part of. We always try to involve them because mm-hmm. you you have to work as a team. If it's it's like a vehicle. If if you know if your chaplain's the oil and you're running low on oil, or you know things just don't don't work properly. Hmm. If the communication's not there, um, it just, I don't know you, everybody, I feel like everybody has to be involved. Hmm. That's powerful. I like that. I mean, it's, uh, it's nice to hear that, that, because unfortunately there are times that, uh, well, Saul and I have talked about it where we've sometimes felt that, you know, why are we here? And that's an unfortunate situation. And right now, of course, with the COVID situation, when they started talking about essential employees and we're like, well, we're essential. Yes, <laughs> even though you we, are, absolutely. Even though we weren't allowed in facilities, right. uh, we weren't even really allowed to go to homes at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it felt, it was difficult, uh, quite frankly. It, it's, it's very difficult. That's why when we things seem to start to loosen up around here that, you know, I felt really that I was doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, For my chaplain, like I said, he didn't have any hospice um, experience. Um, But for me, just having seen the effect, the work that the chaplain did with my brother and seeing the end result, I think for a lot of families that are believers who have loved ones that aren't saved, that's their their worry. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I've run into that a lot. True. And, um, it's just, I think for a long time, it was really, I think maybe he felt that way. And I'm glad that you said that because I never really looked at it in that, in that way that why am I here? What is my true calling or what am I really supposed to do? Because there'll be times he goes into home and they're not receptive and he doesn't go into the homes all the time and just preach. Um, you know, he's different with everybody. Some people just want companionship or whatever that looks like. Um, but I I really think after he has taken these classes, it has kind of helped him learn a little bit more about what his role is and how uh-huh. important it is and how to facilitate those conversations in a roundabout way to help that patient come around to to resolve those issues or those spiritual crises or whatever it is that they're going through. I had a patient a number of years ago, and only the nurse... And the chaplain was allowed in to visit this man. And the only reason I was able to get in there is because I played pinochle. And I knew how to play pinochle with the guy and two other friends. And we, you know, we sat around, we, we talked sports, we talked, but I was the presence. And that was what was so important for him. Yeah. And then, you know, the, 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 the company looked at me like, you know, why is it you get in there and nobody else does? And I said, well, yeah. That's the way it is. That was his choice. Yeah. 
Well, and you gain, we have a patient just recently um, who had revocated and went into the hospital, but he has constantly stayed in touch with our chaplain. He loves our chaplain. There you go. I'm not going to. I'm not going to lose you, am I? Are you going to come up and see me? You know, can you pray for me over the phone? Are you going to come see me when I get home? Like, he was so worried he was going to lose that's him. A, you know, you've, you've got a patient there coming back to you. So, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the way it's supposed to be, quite frankly. Yeah, and he, our chaplain plays music, and we do have a couple patients. We have a patient that hasn't picked up his guitar in 23 years. And when he found out our chaplain played, the chaplain took his guitar over there, and he played his guitar for the first time in 23 years. Awesome. So, yeah. Well, I guess I better get some guitar That's lessons. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, guess, I guess it just, we're all important. We're all mm. essential. Even, mm-hmm. when, even if somebody else doesn't think we are, you really don't know um, how valuable you are to somebody Um mm. No, you don't, and that's that's the thing that troubles me with uh, under these circumstances because you know uh, we've struggled this with our hospice with you know when do you call, how often do you call, mm-hmm. what is it they're supposed to how would blah 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 blah, and you're already saying well I'm going to you know because it's part of the team they're going to be called all the time. To me, that is refreshing. You you know, you're amazing, you know, in your work as a hospice nurse, but also as a hospice director. What keeps you going? Um, I think just, it just all goes back to, to my brother, honoring his memory, knowing what I know about hospice, knowing where those families are because I've been there, knowing how they're feeling and what they're going through. I never, ever want anybody to have a bad experience in such an important time of their life. Um, I never want a patient to die alone. I never want a patient to not be comfortable. Um, I just, as long as God continues to call me here, this is where I'll stay, and I'll just continue doing the best that I can. Good job. Thank Thank you much. Thank you very much, Ashley. I appreciate you having me on the show. It was exciting. Blessings to you. You as well. That was Ashley Gower. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 